if you guys have, uh, have been with us the past couple of weeks, you know that we have been in the book of Malachi. And if you remember uh, the little overview I gave on Malachi two weeks ago, the people of Malachi were in a very unknown place. They had been able to go back home. They rebuilt the temple. They started all their sacrifices. All the stuff they knew to do, they had started doing it again. And yet they're they're sitting in this place going, the future we thought was promised to us is not coming. And the past that we had that was so great is completely gone. And they were very bitter, very frustrated, very anxious. I mean, they just weren't sure of what was going on. Uh, by the time that God speaks to them through, through Malachi. And so this, this promise and this, this word that God gives to his people through Malachi uh, is an important one. And it's one that you and I, I, I hope you've picked up on the past couple of weeks, it really kind of fits with where many of us seem to find ourselves today. So to remind you of how God has spoken the past two weeks through Malachi If you remember the first thing God does when he shows up to his people, they're bitter, they're frustrated, their intention, their future and their past are not what they want it to be. The first thing he does, he says, you have to remember who you are. And that's what what stops them in their spiraling, the stuff that we were praying about earlier. That's what, what pushed pause on all the anxiety that the people had. He says, remember who you are. The second thing, what we saw last week in chapter 2, God says, let me tell you who you are once again, children of Israel. He says, you are my priests who make peace and my covenant partners who bear fruit. He says, this is who you are. So something about remembering who you are and being reminded of the purpose that God has given you, it, it reminds us, okay, I don't need to be bitter. I don't need to be frustrated. In fact, maybe my view of the past or my view of the future might not be what I need to be focused on right now because God has reminded me of who I am for this moment that we get to live in right now. So by the time we get to chapter 3 today, guys, now God has said, okay, now that I've got your attention, now that you remember who you are, now we can start to talk about what am I going to ask you to do. And we're going to see in the same vein as the first two chapters again, when God shows up to his people, he's not necessarily saying, you're doing the wrong thing. I need to fix your actions. He shows up and says, you have forgotten who you are. Your heart is not in the right place. And that's where I have to start. So as God is going to give his people a little bit of practical peace, we're, I'll let you pick up on it. There's a moment here where God says, be careful what you wish for when you're when you're asking for my, my judgment, uh, you might not wish that upon uh, as much as you think you do. But God shows up and says, again, remember who you are. And really, guys, the, if you boiled everything down into one word, what God is going to tell his people today is trust. He says, if you remember who you are and you remember the purpose that I have given to you, what I am asking you to do fundamentally in your faith is trust. Trust today that God's reconciliation work is worth the sacrifice of faith. And God's going to kind of show this to his people in a couple different ways. This is, just as a quick aside, this is also why I love Malachi. 
because God kind of sends the same thing over and over and over again, almost like a really good teacher that says, I know some of y'all didn't hear that the first time, so let me try saying it a slightly different way. And I know some of you missed it the first two times, so let me repeat this again. But God consistently is going to tell his people today, I need you to trust me and trust that this reconciliation work I am doing in your heart and in the lives of the people around you, this is really what I am after. There's nothing that's going to stop this work. There's nothing that is greater than this work. Join me. Trust me in this. So beginning in chapter 2, verse 17, we're going to read to about halfway through chapter 3 today. God says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, Well, how have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Well, where is the God of justice? Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, well, how shall we return? Well, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, well, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that they may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear fruit, says the Lord of hosts." Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, well, how have we spoken against you? You have said, well, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Father, as I have been reading through Malachi, I imagine there are others today who feel the same uh, tension that your people did. God, that they, they look around and just things are not as we hoped they would be. Sometimes it's in you know, just our personal lives. Sometimes that's in the way you know, we look at our world. But God, the, when we look around and we see the brokenness, we are reminded of you. But God, I am so prone to doing exactly what Israel did, Lord. 
Father, I, I question, really, Lord, I mean, you could take all of my arguments this morning, God, but really, truthfully, it just kind of comes down to, I don't always trust that you are worth it. And so, Father, as you have been speaking to your people, God, of all the things you could have told us to do, uh, of all the things that you could have asked of us, Father, that if we have been made right with you, if we've been reconciled, God, of all the things that you could have asked of us, you've asked us to trust you. So, Father, as we unpack your word this morning, may we see why we need to trust you and how that trust, Father, I mean, it, it greatly transforms our hearts and the way that we interact with ourselves and with those around us. It is in your holy name we pray. Amen. So we've said that this is what God is after, his people trusting his reconciliation work. So if we look just with me now at, at verse, verse 17 in chapter 2 through verse 5 of chapter 3, okay, just the first little bit here. This is kind of the first little piece of dialogue where God is talking to his people saying, okay, okay, I need you to trust me. Trust me with this. All right, so if you look at verse 17, beginning there, God declares his people have wearied him with their words. Remember last week we talked about if we're living in this covenant relationship with God, the, the covenant implied peace, right? We are at rest. So when God says, you're wearying me, he says, look, something about this is, is not right. This does not fit into the covenant. You're not, it's not like you're wearing God down, like he can't hear your complaints anymore. He says, no, you're, you are not at peace with me in this moment. And his people say, well, how, how are we not at peace with you? And God says, well, you've been looking around you saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Basically, Israel was watching saying, you know what? Those people over there aren't following God. And God, I'm not seeing your judgment against them. In fact, I'm actually seeing what looks like your blessings with them. So Israel starts to say, well, God, if you're not doing anything about that, and to us that's blatantly wrong, then what, like, what, what are you doing, God, is what his people are saying. In fact, they're actually starting to now say, well, maybe he just doesn't care. Maybe God doesn't care. Otherwise, he would do something. And I realize that's, that's language I've heard in my own heart. That is certainly language I have heard in the church. But this, this was a natural response for Israel, okay? I mean, if you guys think about where Israel's coming out of, they were oppressed. They were under the rule of Babylon. They were under the rule of Persia. They're finally back in their homeland. They finally have rebuilt the temple. They're finally giving sacrifices. Like, in their minds, they're doing everything they thought they should have been able to do for, for generations. And they're seeing it doesn't make a difference. So this is a very natural response for Israel going, I am trying my hardest, Lord. Those people over there aren't trying at all. Do you really care, God? Do you care? And when you and I feel like this today, we feel we end up usually doing just what Israel did. Well, we do one of two things. Either we say, well, God, if you don't care something, I do. So I'm going to go take care of that. that. That is some of us. Most of us probably tend to what Israel did, which is just a... If God doesn't really care, then I'm not going to start trying as hard, right? I, why care so much if, if God doesn't? 
And again, as God is speaking with his people, he's not trying to pick on one approach over the other. He says, look, both of these attitudes are speaking from a wrong heart. We have to, we have to address this. So notice how God addresses this beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. God responds to Israel saying, first off, I am aware of what's going on. He says, oh, well, do you think I'm God? Do you think I don't see? Do you think I don't care? He says, I, I am already at work. Let me tell you, Israel, how I am already at work. He says, I have sent, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. God says, look, I'm already at work. I'm going to send someone who's going to start stirring the hearts of the people to be ready to receive Christ. Now, this is pretty cool. Because if you remember from the order of your scriptures, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, right? So after Malachi comes 430 years of silence, and then John the Baptist enters the scene, just what we read earlier in Luke. So right here, God's saying, no, I'm sending somebody who's going to prepare the way for the Messiah, John the Baptist. But then God also says, but the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. God says, I'm not just going to send someone to tell people about who I am. I'm going to show up, and I'm going to remind you and the world of who I am. And he also kind of slips in this little subtle reminder of, by the way, Israel, I'm coming to you, because he says, I will come into my temple. If you guys remember, Israel would have thought of this as the big temple. You and I have a little bit of benefit of commentary from other scriptures that say, well, you and I are the temple today. God says, I know what's going on. I know where my people are. I'm coming back. But verses 2 through 5 also kind of give the picture. God says, be careful, though, what you wish for. Because God says, I will come back. I will purify, listen, the sons of Levi. And I will refine them like gold and silver. Verse 3. He says, they, these sons of Levi, will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. When you and I tend to think about God's judgment today, this is not all the time, but usually. Do we think about it as something on us or on those people over there, right? We tend, our attitude tends to be, look at what they are doing. Listen to what they are saying. God, go pour out your judgment on them. And God says, I'm well aware of what's going on in the world, but guess where my judgment is going first, Israel? Why do you think the world has no clue what I look like, Israel? Because I showed up and I made a covenant with you, and you have not been faithful to this, Israel. He says, I'm coming first to refine Levi. We talked about this last week, that Levi being the priesthood tribe of Israel. God's saying, my people whom I asked, I asked to be partners with me to show the world who I am. Y'all have not done that well. No wonder the world does not know who I am. God says, look, my reconciliation work is not just for those people over there. He says, in fact, I need all of my creation to take part in this. He says, my reconciliation work is not just something for what you would consider to be the wicked. He says, this is something that I intend to do for all of my people. I desire these offerings in righteousness. I desire your lives, Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, the language that Malachi says. I desire your lives to be pleasing 
to me. And God says, I will draw near to you. Like, I am coming for all of my people. I am not just coming to take my people away from those people. I am coming to restore, to reconcile all of my creation. He says, I will be a swift witness against. And then he lists. He says, I am well aware of the wickedness. You do not need to spend all your time pointing it out to me, Israel. I know. But the rest of the world has not seen who I am in you yet. And that is where I need. I need your attention, people of God. I mean, it's this pattern of God saying, look, I know. I, in fact, you, you have a heart for it. Don't you think that it breaks mine? Don't you think that I know how deeply my creation, my image being broken apart from me feels? God says, I am well aware of this. But what I am asking you, children of Israel, what I'm asking you, church, to do You don't have to point it out to me anymore. I got it. I need you to trust me. This is the work that God has called his people to do. Look, if you remember who you were made to be, remember that you are my priests. Remember you are my covenant partners. You will trust I am doing a reconciliation work. And when you trust that, you'll get to join in that. Now, this is not just a picture of God speaking from Malachi. God has actually been telling this to us over each of the different sermon series that we've gone through in this past year. If you think back, this would have been about three or four weeks ago to when we were in Hebrews, right? I think it was Hebrews 3 where we were saying how Jesus was greater than Moses, and God gave us this analogy of how the builder is greater than the house. And the author of Hebrews puts this wonderful line in there, in case we read ourselves into the builder, he says, and we are the house of God saying, you you and I are not the builders of the house. We are the house itself that is being built. And so God says, look, the house doesn't tell the builder how the builder should build the house. The house trusts the builder knows what he's doing. The builder is looking at the full blueprints, right? Say if I am part of the roof of the house, and I'm saying, God, I don't want my slope to be like this. I want to be this fancy roof that has all these little juts and angles and windows, God says, yeah, that might look nice, but that doesn't match the floor plan I'm building under you, right? The the house cannot tell the builder how to build the house. The house trusts the builder. We saw this in Exodus, right? What was the first thing God did after he delivered Israel out of Egypt when they were in the wilderness? Do you guys remember? Because this would have been This is getting into gold star category, if your mind can go back this far. But the first thing God was doing for his people, right after he gets them out of Egypt, is he kind of puts them through a series of trials to make sure they trust him, right? The water was bitter, and so they're crying out to God, and he provides clean water. Then they're without food, and then God solves that. Then they're without water again. God almost saying, hey, are you going to respond differently than you did the first time? Because you didn't trust me much. You got pretty mad at Moses. And then the Amalekites come up and God has to provide for them. I mean, God keeps allowing the people to struggle to say, look, right after I've delivered you, I need you to trust me. I need you to trust this work that I'm doing. For mega gold stars... If you remember all the way back to Colossians when we went through that book, that would have been in April when John and I taught through that. The whole point of Paul's letter to the church in Colossae was to say, look, don't leave Jesus, right? 
Jesus has probably put, brought you some more hardships than you thought. Right? Being followers of Jesus did not make you friends with the world. In fact, the Romans don't understand you, so they're not nice to you. The Jews are still pretty mad at you and all the things that Jesus claimed he would do to them. So followers of Jesus were feeling it. And Paul says, don't leave Jesus. You trust in who you know Jesus to be and what God is doing through him. Right? This is, we've been reading this too in the Advent narratives. Right? Mary and Joseph... Elizabeth and Zechariah, their births would have looked very odd to the rest of the world. God says, I'm, I need you to trust me. I need you to trust that what I am doing in you, I am, I am working not just to pour out my judgment on those people over there. I need to bring all of my creation to be made right with me. Trust me. But God continues he keeps telling his people this. So we get this in the first part of chapter 3, but this is the rest of chapter 3 too. God continues in verse 6. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. I wanted you to trust me back in Exodus. still want you to trust me now. I'm going to ask you to trust me again later. It's, it's the same thing. I do not change. Because of this, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God says, because I have always been about making sure all of my creation was being reconciled to me, that's why you're still here, Jacob. That's why you're still here, Israel. Remember this. I, this is what I always want. And also, you always have hope because this is what I want. Right? My heart for all of my creation is that they would be made right with him. But he says in verses 7 through 9, Israel... You have not trusted this. And he uses the language here of, you have robbed me. And I've always thought that was, that's a really interesting analogy to think that you could take something from God. Right? Like that's the question we're left with. Okay, how, what, what do we have that is God's? Like wh how could we have taken something from him? We're told in verse 8, people say, how have we robbed you? God says, in your tithes. And contributions. Now there is a major rabbit trail that we could chase with this. We're going to chase part of it today. Not the full thing. Because it actually links to Hebrews. So I'm just going to show you the, the doorway of the rabbit trail, if you will. We won't go all the way down it. But the Hebrew there for tithe is the word ma'aser. It, it literally means a tenth. So that's, if you've ever heard churches talk about tithing, giving 10% of what you have to the church, like this is kind of the, the Hebrew word for where this comes from. Okay? This word was first used in Genesis 14.20 when Abram, so before he's even Abram, Abraham, Abram gives a ma'aser, a tenth, to Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is the guy we can't, we can't dive all the way down the rabbit hole today. Melchizedek, though, will show up in Hebrews. So we're going to come back to this. But the little short answer today is that Melchizedek is a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. So the big picture from Genesis 14 is Abram has just rescued Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. He has just looked at someone who bears the image of God and he has rescued him out of wickedness. So you can say, well, this kind of sounds like a work God does. So Abram has just lived out the heart of God. A Christ figure shows up and says, 
Amen, brother. Like that is exactly who God is and what he is about. And what Abram does is he tithes, which is a picture of saying, I am committed to this. Like more than just, okay, yeah, thank you. That was a one-time deal. Abram says, no, I am committed to being that person to being one who is going to reconcile, to join God in this work. So when God says, you have neglected my tithes, you have robbed me of your tithes and contributions, God is saying, you told me that you would be people who would join me in this work of reconciliation. And Israel, now that you're sitting here going, ooh, this isn't getting me all that I thought it would, you have left that heart behind. This is more than just withholding money from God. God says you are holding back part of your heart. You promised Israel you would be this for the world, and you have stopped. You have stopped because it doesn't benefit you anymore. And this is echoed in that second noun that's translated contributions. It's the Hebrew noun teruma. It just simply means gift. You have stopped giving. You have stopped giving caring for those around you. And this is a deep heart issue that Israel has. So what does God say? Verse 10, bring the full tithe. Bring that whole heart back, Israel. Remember who you were. Remember that covenant that I made. Trust this work. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Put me to the test if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. God says, trust me. Verses 11 and 12, he says, now, again, I'm I'm not going to make the point today that it's a a purely physical blessing, although I think you can read in Scripture and say God does desire to physically bless his people. And he doesn't say, don't ask for this, okay? But when God says, I'm going to rebuke the devourer so that you can bear fruit, man, from last week, this is that fruit bearing, that covenant language again. God says, if you actually trusted this covenant that you made with me, Israel, oh man, you would see just how good life with me really is. The picture of trust God is asking of his people. And he summarizes it one more time in verses 13 through 15. He says, here's your final charge, Israel. You have, your words have been hard against me. That sounds like a weird phrase in English to say that your words are hard against someone. But that hard is the same hard used when Pharaoh's heart was hard. So God is telling his people, you are speaking in opposition against me. Why? When do you do this? When you say, what is the profit of keeping his charge? It is vain to serve God. And it kind of brings us back to this idea that we've been tracking in Exodus. We've been tracking it in Hebrews. We've tracked it here in Malachi. This idea of a heart that's bent on power, production, or self is fundamentally opposed to the work of God. It is not a heart that's bent on reconciliation because it's saying, well, what what do we get? What do we get out of serving God? God says, I can't have this heart. I can't. This is not one that's going, that I can work with. The call that God gives his people is to trust his reconciliation is worth the sacrifice of faith. I love one of the clearest pictures of this I think we get. 
although I don't know we always think about it this way. When, do you remember when Peter denies Jesus the three times? Peter's kind of in this place where Peter's realizing, ooh, uh, I don't think I want to be associated with this Jesus guy right now. This is going to be very costly. In fact, this, this is not going to go very well for me. And so Peter denies that he's with Jesus. And Jesus shows up to Peter, and what he does, he doesn't tell Peter why Peter was so bad for denying him. He says, Peter, do you, do you love me? Which is ironically very similar to what God says at the very beginning, Malachi 1-2. I have loved you. He says, do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. He says, Peter, if you remember who you are, you remember who I am, trust that. Go live that. This is what God is after. I think a, a practical picture of all of this, because when I, was, when I was preparing this this week, church, I was thinking, okay, I like to ask that question, though, but why, why would God have to remind me of this? Right? Why does God have to remind us to trust him? Like that, that should have been an assumption. God, if I'm going to give you my life, if I'm going to put my faith in you, if I'm going to ask you to be my Lord and Savior, of course I trust you. Now can you please just tell me what I'm supposed to do with this? Why does God keep coming back to, no, I need you to trust me, Jordan. And I've realized, well, it's because when I assume that I'm still trusting him, I find out I actually don't. I, I take what I have learned and what I've experienced with him, and I actually use it to serve me. Here's a picture of what I mean by this. One of the things I do at Blacksburg Transit is I conduct proficiency evaluations. Um, all of the trainers get to do them. I end up doing a lot of them. But it's three months after somebody's released from training. They're out. They're driving on their own. They're picking up people. They're doing their thing. We come. We show up. We ride for 30 minutes with them. And I jokingly tell them when I go on the bus, I'm here to see how many bad habits you have picked up over the last three months. And it's, it's a little tongue-in-cheek. It's also pretty true because our driving doesn't tend to get better. It just gets worse. But really, what I'm watching for is to see how much, now that you've been driving, now that you've been on your own, now that you've been with people who haven't been in training for a very long time and they were telling you how to drive the bus, how much do you still trust what I told you in training, right? Now, that's a little too metaphysical for most trainees to understand, so I don't tell them that. But really, that's what I'm watching for is if you still drove, like how we taught you to drive in training, that would tell me you trusted your trainers, that they kind of knew what they were talking about, that they actually knew how to drive the bus, they knew what was safest, it's not a perfect analogy because we are not perfect in that knowledge, but you, you get the image of what I'm going for. It is amazing to watch the number of little things that start to happen over a span of three months, right? You start dropping the hand off the wheel and turning the bus like this with one hand. You start, you start going about five miles over the speed limit because you're a bus. Like, nobody's going to get in your way. You're a bus. You start... You, maybe you're not as polite to the passengers. You're, you're going around curves a little bit faster because you feel comfortable. And when you're comfortable in your vehicle, your speed goes up. That, that's true for anybody. That's not just bus drivers. 
But the general reaction I get from trainees when I point these things out to them, and granted, none of them are really to the point where they're failing. They're not terrible drivers, but they're little things that you notice. When I point them out, it's one of two things. One is, oh, I didn't even know that, uh, which is not really a response that you want to hear. But I've learned the one that scares me more is the one that says, oh, I know, I know. I'll fix that. N no, you won't. I, I know that as soon as I get off the bus, this is not, I know you're going to drive a perfect 30-minute loop for me after I point this out, and then it's all going to go away. Because, and it's, it tells me where their trust is, right? Because most people, when they come in, they have no clue what it's like to drive a bus. They're just kind of in awe of this million-dollar, you know, 27,000-pound machine that they're going to be tasked with driving and driving full of people, full of people not paying attention, around cars not paying attention, and all kinds of weather that we get in Blacksburg, right? Like, it's not the easiest of jobs. So they listen to their trainers at the beginning, especially those who have not driven anything larger than a minivan. But the more they get comfortable, and the more they start to get their own experience, you can almost see them say, well, the trainers told me to drive at the speed limit. I'm driving five over and nothing's happening. Right? Well, the trainers told me to drive with two hands on the wheel, but nothing's really happening if I'm just driving with one hand. I, I've noticed that a, a trainee's response to critique really tells me where their trust is. Because if they defend or whatever they're doing, that tells me they don't really trust that what we taught them was actually safest or what, what was actually going on. Now they're trusting in their own experience because they're saying, I know the right thing to do. So I should be able to keep getting the same outcome. Guys, the danger in this, when we start trusting in ourselves instead of the trainer, the creator, if you'll go back to the scripture with me, it assumes that the only things that can happen wrong are external. It assumes that, well, because I know what to do, the problem's never with me. The problem is with what somebody else is doing. Look at what those wicked people over there are doing. God, go take care of that. It wasn't me that was, that was you know, I, I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. That person cut me off. Lord, that's why I had to honk at them and ride right up on their tail. Right? It's, it's somebody else's problem. The problem with this, we tell people when they're in training, guess what percent of accidents happen on clear, dry, perfectly sunny days? 92. Because we assume... And 45% of that 92%, so roughly half of all accidents happen because people are not looking before they go. You would think that would be fundamentally one-on-one, right? You would look before you drive your car. 45% of accidents, see, I'm sorry, this is not scripture. This is free for you. 45% of accidents happen when you're not looking, 92% happen on clear, dry, sunny days. The data would tell you otherwise. That most accidents are not somebody else's fault or the weather's fault. It's we trust too much in ourselves. Rather than that healthy fear we had at the beginning from the one who knew what he was doing and what he was talking about. And God says for the people of Israel, this is what we have to recapture. Israel comes back from exile. They say, we know what to do. 
right? We know how to make sacrifices. We know what the temple's supposed to look like. We know the right actions. We know how to point out when other people aren't doing it right. We know, God, why haven't you done what you said you were when we're doing the right thing? And God says, well, you're not trusting me. Your heart is nowhere where I need it. So maybe today, guys, as we wrap up, maybe we need to be reminded of the same things that God is reminding his people big picture through the book of Malachi. We've talked about this a lot today, but that we're loved. God shows up right at the beginning of Malachi and says, you are loved. We talked about that two weeks ago, said how, how disarming is it if the first thing you said in an argument is, before we get into this, I love you. You're like, oh man, all of my well-placed grenades, I don't really want to lob at you anymore now that I'm reminded that you love me. Right? We know this, but we don't always trust this because we still beat ourselves up when we fail. We still hold ourselves to standards that we know we can't keep. This is also how we treat other people. God says, look, I, if you trust that I love you, you don't feel like you have to go take power to impress me. You don't feel like you have to go produce to earn my love. You don't feel like you have to fix yourself before you can come and worship me or be with my people. God says, that's you put that on yourself. That is not me. That is the power production self I have to break you of in your heart. He reminds us that we are loved. He also reminds us in Malachi, we are works in progress. God knows I have this design, my image that I want you to bear, and I'm willing to be patient and to work with you to you know, let you figure out all these different areas that we're going to have to have this work done in. But we don't often trust this. Right? The most common one, we tend to act as if we're not going to receive God's blessing or help if we don't perfect his image in our lives. That that's going to somehow disqualify us from being with God. And then again, if we think that, we hold others to that. God says that is not what I'm asking you. That is not what I'm after here. I would encourage us today, look, God also didn't call us to trust him in a vacuum. It's not some blind optimism that overlooks the hard circumstances that you go through, right? After God calls Israel to trust, we're going to see next week how he actually comes to his people to live with them through that trust. The very next picture after Malachi, Jesus comes. Live with his people through that trust. After Jesus leaves, the Holy Spirit comes. Lives with his people through that trust. This is what we celebrate in Christmas, guys. God sent his son, the Emmanuel, God with us. The wonderful counselor, right, who helps us see who we are, remember what he's asked us to do, show us how we can do what we need to. He's the mighty God, all power and authority over heaven and earth. He's the everlasting Father who loves us and draws us into his presence for eternity. He's the Prince of Peace. He brings peace. Man, do we need peace. Okay. So I pray that we would remember and just say, God, I know a lot of these things about you. Today, I actually just need to trust them and then see what God does. Let's pray. O lover of the loveless, it is thy will that I should love thee with heart, soul, mind, strength, and love my neighbor 
as myself, that I am not sufficient for these things. There is by nature no pure love in my soul, and every affection in me is turned from thee. I am bound as a slave to lust. I cannot love thee, lovely as thou art, until thou sets me free. By grace I am thy free man, and I would serve thee, for I believe thou art my God in Jesus, and through him I am redeemed, and my sins are forgiven. With this freedom I would always obey thee, God, but I cannot walk in liberty any more than I first could attain it of myself. May thy spirit draw me near to thee and thy ways. Thou art the end of all means, for if they do not lead me to thee, I go away empty. Order all my ways by thy holy word, and make thy commandments the joy of my heart, that by them I may have happy converse with thee. May I grow in thy love and manifest it to mankind. Spirit of love, make me like the loving Jesus. Give me his benevolent temper, his beneficent actions, that I may shine before men to thy glory. The more thou does in love in me and by me, humble me the more. Keep me meek and lowly. Make me always ready to give the honor. Father, we do want to trust you. And we praise you for who you are today. May you hear the response of our hearts. In Jesus' name.